Let's pray. Father, we depend on you completely and wholly to speak this morning. We trust your word. We trust that your word says it will do what you declare it will do and it will accomplish the thing you send it out to accomplish. And because of that, we're confident that what is said this morning will be your will, will be your spirit speaking and your truth will be proclaimed and your people will hear and they will listen and they will learn and they will grow and they will be sanctified and transformed. That's what we believe. And if we lack confidence in that truth at all, I pray that you would correct our thinking and reveal to us the power of your word by changing lives. We are in need of constant change, God. Let us not forget that our need for endless sanctification is because there is a perfection you have already promised, guaranteed, sealed, and applied to us that we want to attain. Help us walk the path of righteousness that you have prepared before the foundation of the world for us to walk in. Establish each step. Glorify yourself through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. In today's text, uh, Paul is going to give direction to first century slaves who are believers. And if you're thinking, what? We're going to talk about slavery? First century slavery? Not only can I not identify with slavery, but I certainly can identify with first century slavery, which is very different from our American concept of slavery. And... Uh, might be thinking, like, what does this have to do with us? Well, regardless of what it does or does not have to do with us, it's in the Word, and we have to preach it. So there's that. And in addition to that, underneath all of these applicable realities, such as how slaves are to behave, are principles that, that, that Paul is, are foundational principles that Paul is revealing to us through practical means. And those foundational principles apply to all of us in many different situations. And so we're going to walk through what the slavery looks like. And the real question here is, why does Paul say what he says to Christian slaves? And when we discover why he says what he says to these Christian slaves, we will see the principle that is important for all of us to apply. And so he, his command for these slaves, it doesn't really fit well with today's modern agenda to correct all injustices. I do believe that there are injustices that Christians are supposed to enforce. Mike, check. Is it on? Yes, no? I can be loud. Okay. So... Modern agenda in our world, people love to correct injustices, which to me is somewhat laughable because the, the secular and unbelieving world seeks to correct injustices in the world with a morality that they steal from the word of God, which makes this, I don't understand how an unbeliever can, can take from God his moral code and apply it to their life while being separated from Christ himself and claim that they don't need God, yet they need his morality. And so the world operates to fix all of these injustices. And you would think that as Christians, oh, we also really should fix all of the injustices in the world. And then you read the Bible and you realize, actually, it's just, it's really non-believers who make the agenda of their life to correct all injustices. That's not what the Christians are called to. Should Christians address or fix or attempt to, to, to combat certain injustices in the world? I do believe the answer is yes, there are some. And there are ways, and I'm not going to get into what, which ones are, I think are appropriate or inappropriate. But I think as believers, we look at the secular world and we go, look at this whole world is trying to, to, to fix all these incorrections and there are all these immoral things going on in the world. The whole world is trying to, to fix them and correct them and deal with them and adjust them and address them. 
And Krishna's like, yeah, we should be doing that too because we believe that morally good thing as well. And there are actually better biblical principles underneath those injustices that Paul will reveal one of them today that reveal to us that maybe our responsibility is not to correct all of the injustices in the world because that's God's job. And he tells us it's his job and he tells us, I will do it. Your responsibility is in this life to face those injustices, not fix them. That's my job. And so that's the principle that we're going to kind of see unfold here. For the first century slave, what that means is remaining in slavery. And honoring their slave masters. And though that is not universally applicable to all forms of slavery, because not all slavery is equal, right? Like children who are kidnapped and sold into sex slavery is not something that we should be like, oh, just endure it. Like that is not like this. We'll see what first century slavery is like. And why it makes sense that Paul makes the application that he does. So this is just a disclaimer, two disclaimers. One, Christians should fight for injustices at times, fight for justice at times. And two, all slavery, not all slavery is acceptable as the slavery that Paul is addressing. And so this this concept that Paul is telling these slaves to stay in their slavery, honor their masters, it teaches us a principle about enduring hardship for the sake of others and for the exaltation of the gospel in your suffering by considering another person's benefit as worthy of your loss. In this case, the loss of your freedom. Even if that other person is enforcing an injustice or a suffering upon you, to still endure. After all, Jesus commands us to love our enemies and bless those who persecute us. So that's the principle we're going we're gonna to see unravel here. We'll start in verse 1. Paul says, Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Now, at first read, this sounds obtuse of Paul to tell slaves to not only remain slaves, but to honor their slave owner or master, as he calls them. And the reason we cringe at this idea of slaves joyfully enduring their slavery is because as Americans, we have a jaded view of slavery, and rightfully so due to early American slavery. But slavery in the first century was much different. Slaves had rights, they could own their own property, they were often considered by their masters as like members of their household, they were loved and cherished, to to, the children they were like another older sibling or like another parent or like a caretaker or they were like like a, a maid type of scenario, they were servants. It didn't feel like the inhumane form of slavery that we tend to think about. And we think about American slavery, which, by the way, is not even close to the worst slavery that has existed in this world. And that is a vitally important piece of information to understand as we interpret this text. What first century slavery was like. It was more like a job... And you were in servitude to your master, but it was not like in shackles and being beaten. Now, those kinds of things certainly happened to some degree in some ways by some people. And there were definitely traits, uh, slaves who were mistreated for sure. Uh, but for the most part, slavery is, was fairly tame compared to, I think, most Americans' view of what slavery is. However, and this is important. It's important to understand that slavery wasn't as terrible as we might think it is. But Paul never makes an argument for slaves to joyfully submit to their masters based on the condition of their slavery. He never uses the type of slavery they're facing as the reason they should endure it. 
He never tells slaves to just deal with it because their slavery isn't that bad or they ought to look on the bright side and realize, you know, as a slave, you don't really have it that bad. Instead, Paul's reason for slaves to stay under their master and to honor their master is the gospel. His reason is the gospel. It's an opportunity to show the gospel. It's an opportunity to live the gospel. It's an opportunity to experience the sufferings of Christ. It's an opportunity to show the world what the gospel looks like. It's an opportunity to show the world what Jesus has done, who he is and what he's like and what he's willing to endure for the sake of somebody else. What does Paul mean when he says in verse one, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled? The name of God and the teaching refers to the glory that God receives through the truth of the gospel. Meaning, as the gospel is taught or proclaimed or believed by a Christian who is a slave, it must also be lived. If the slave is serving and they say, I'm a Christian, and the master goes, yeah, you're a Christian, then why'd you try to run away last night? Now, the, the, the master may not interpret them running away as not living the gospel, but what Paul is saying is you stay and you serve and you honor your master to show them Christ. So as much as it's proclaimed and taught and believed by the slave, it must also be lived. And those who live it while also proclaiming it bring honor and glory to God's name which is why he says the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. It brings honor and glory to God's name by validating the power of the gospel to overcome cultural norms and to overcome common expectations of humans to desire to leave their slavery, escape their slavery, all in the name of justice, all in the name of morality. I don't know how you feel about injustices, but I know how I feel about injustices. And everybody's personality is different. There is a, I think it's the Myers-Briggs test, I don't remember, um, where it, it takes like competing characteristics in your personality and it kind of weighs them. And one of the competing, a pair of the competing characteristics that it weighs against is justice and mercy. So it'll evaluate you and it'll do this. It'll say you're either more mercy and less justice or more justice and less mercy. And what you'll notice in life is the people who are more oriented towards justice and less oriented towards mercy are the people who are super, super, super boisterous and outgoing and convicted about all of the wrongs in the world that need to be fixed. That's kind of their personality, right? And when I take that test, it was like, you have no mercy and all justice. And I was like, oh, that looks like an unhealthy balance. <laughs> I should probably even those things out. My wife did it, and she was like, all mercy, because she's full of compassion. She sees people hurting, and her heart just falls apart. And my first question is, well, what'd they do? <laughs> they probably deserve it. I, you know, like, and, and honestly, that's sinful. So we laugh about it. It's not okay. But that tends to be my perception. So I hate injustices, even ones that aren't really related to the gospel itself. Like my wife and I'll be watching a TV show, and it's, it's a made-up script that some person wrote, right? It's not real. And I see the one character being mistreated. I'm like, oh, I can't stand this show. It's not fair. Why would they treat this person that way? Like, why don't they speak up and defend themselves? This is so unjust. And I'm like, oh, Mark, calm down. It's a TV show. No one cares. <laughs> and it's like, it, that's how riled up I get about injustices. And it's like, man, I, and, and I know, like, that's not okay that such ridiculous things create such a riot. Yeah. They create in me such a, a frustration over the injustices. But I do know that it comes from a love for the perfections of God in Christ that are going to be dealt with and revealed in eternity forever. That God loves justice. He is a just God and he hates injustices and that he will correct them. So that is that character and that nature of God that's coming out in me. But in my sinful flesh, I manipulate that sense of injustice and I misapply it often. And therefore, what we tend to do as people is we look at people in our life and so where the rubber really hits the road in the Christian's life is not watching some TV show that you can just kind of get over, 
But dealing with real people in our real lives, in real relationships, and looking at their imperfections and smashing them because they don't live up to our standard of what is right and what is wrong. And we look at it as an injustice and we crush them for it because we have an imbalance of mercy. And if God dealt with us that way, then we would go to hell. Instead, we are to deal with people in mercy. And God gives to us, God does the opposite of what I just described for you as my personality, is God floods us because he's rich in mercy, floods us with his mercy, and doesn't give us justice. The justice is put on Christ as he pays for our sins. And what we get is unfair. What we get is a form of non-justice. We get mercy. And we ought to be showing the world that same thing. Now, every Christian would today would, I think, rationally argue that slavery is an injustice. Even slavery like that of the first century. And I would agree, and as we all should, that no human is of lesser value than for any reason, and as we are all made in God's image and deserve to be treated by each other with a general degree of respect and fairness and justice. Therefore, slavery is bad. No one should agree with or approve of slavery of any kind in, in our human relationships, nor should anyone own slaves, which we don't really have today, at least in our context. But in the first century, this was common, even among genuine Christians like Philemon, who was a Christian who owned slaves. And in Philemon's case, Paul encourages the Christian slave owner to release his slave Onesimus from his slavery. But Paul doesn't command him to do so. He encourages him to do so. Paul believes that the spirit of God in Philemon will provide Philemon with the willful change of heart to release Onesimus from slavery because he's his brother in Christ. So Paul does not approve of the injustice of slavery, nor does he believe that Christians should own slaves, but neither does he argue for slavery to end. Paul isn't a social justice warrior running around telling everybody, we need to end slavery, picketing at different locations and trying to rescue people from their slavery and killing slave owners and you know, creating a social media accounts, hashtag end slavery. Like, and I'm not saying that that agenda isn't a righteous agenda or a morally good thing. I'm not arguing against that. I'm arguing for something better. Paul's arguing that through this injustice of slavery, God has provided an opportunity to express the gospel in a unique and God-honoring way. So what is at stake is the glory of God. What is at stake for the slaves to stay in their slavery and honor their masters? What's at stake for them? And them doing this is the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus. Paul's command here is that slaves should honor their masters, and he doesn't state in this text specifically that the slaves should remain in their slavery. But he does say this in 1 Corinthians 7, 20-24. And he argues for slaves to remain in their slavery if they were slaves when they believed the gospel. And Paul writes, Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called, Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who has called you in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Meaning, if you were a slave when you got saved, stay a slave. If your slave master gives you the opportunity to be free, go ahead. Either way, in both situations, you are honoring your slave master. So on the surface, though, it sounds like Paul just doesn't really care about justice. Oh, just stay a slave. And then the believing slave is like, whoa, I thought the gospel is all about God's justice on sin. And and I just have to live in the injustice of 
remaining sin? And Paul's like, you're missing the point. You're thinking about justice. I'm thinking about the glory of God and the expression of the gospel as you endure hardships and suffering at your own peril, at your own expense, and in your own loss to reveal the character, nature, and glory of God in Christ Jesus. You want to be like Christ? You've got to walk the path that Christ walked. A path of endless injustices lobbed against you that are not right but enduring them faithfully. Paul operates according to the gospel. And... The Lord is teaching the church that in any and all situations, we are to operate in a way that best exalts the nature, the character, and the work of Jesus so to ensure that what is preached is also lived. What is proclaimed and believed and the things we say we trust in, say we trust in Christ, we believe this gospel, it frees you from your sins, that we aren't then turning around and becoming social justice warriors against the culture. And Paul's saying, ride some of the waves of the culture, and in that it will be hard and painful, and you will suffer for it in ways, and it will be glorious when you show them the enduring faithfulness of Christ. And in other situations and in other circumstances revealed to us in Scripture, we fight against those cultural norms. We reject them. We repel them. We argue against them. And we fight for Christ. But in this case, you ride the cultural wave for the sake of the gospel. And what Paul is revealing is that we tend to take gospel truth and all the tentacles that come from gospel truth that are elements of morality and we pick off the fruits that we like from the gospel. Ooh, I like this moral truth. Ooh, I like that moral truth. And we operate in these moralities without the gospel. And Paul's like, forget the moralities, forget the tentacles or the branches that come from that gospel or the fruitful pieces of morality that you want to pick from it and just focus on the gospel and grow for yourself your own branches of morality that look different from the morality that the world loves. The world loves to fix injustices, but does the world love to endure injustice? No, but Christ does. And so should we. And that is more beautiful and trying to do what the rest of the world thinks they should be doing. And here in 1 Corinthians 7, the text I just read, Paul, Paul's not even talking about slavery. That's not even his point. He's talking about marriage. Chapter 7 is all about relationships. It's all about marriage. And he slides in this truth about uh, slavery because what he's getting at is he's telling, he's telling the church that if, if you got married as an unbeliever, two an unbeliever. So two unbelievers get married, and then while married, one of you gets saved, you should stay in the marriage. That's his argument in chapter 7, or at that portion of chapter 7. Not seeking to exit the marriage due to the fact that you are now unequally yoked to an unbeliever in marriage. So Paul makes a general argument to uphold his argument about marriage, and he gives as an example... That is a worse situation than unequally yoked marriage, which is slavery. So he uses slavery to make his point about marriage. And his point is that even if a slave is to remain yoked under their master after getting saved, then how much more should a married believer stay yoked in their marriage covenant? Just as a married person should not seek to exit their marriage covenant, so also a slave should not seek to exit their slavery unless there is an opportunity presented to them for their freedom. In which case, Paul says that they're free to leave that slavery and that part is vital because it still enforces what Paul is teaching in 1 Timothy 6, that the slave must honor their master. Now, I do have to address a question about marriage that might come up here, which is the question that if Paul's making an analogy about marriage and slavery and the slave is free to leave his slavery if the opportunity is presented, does that mean that the believing believing spouse is free to leave their marriage if the opportunity is presented? And Paul answers that question earlier in chapter 7, verses 10 and 11, and says, no, you should not. But he gets to a point, if they leave you, what are you going to do about it? You can't stop them. So that happens. He's just addressing the reality that it happens. But all in all, what Paul's addressing there is marriage. And he's using uh, slavery as an expression of what marriage should look like. 
And ultimately, you could turn it around and say, well, he's using marriage also to show us what slavery is like. Not that marriage is slavery. But he is showing that there is a slave-master relationship that's also in marriage. Right? Because in every relationship that we exist in, there is an authority and a submission. There are different degrees of Authority and, and, and also in other relationships we have, there's an equality where neither is an authority and neither submits. But that, Ephesians 5.21 says, we should su- submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So we're always in a submissive attitude. Always in a submissive attitude, which is essential to understanding what Paul's getting at about this being a slave and remaining a slave and honoring your master. Because if you are like Christ, you are submissive, just like Christ is submissive to the Father, 1 Corinthians 11. So also we are submissive to not only Christ, and wives are submissive not only to their husbands, and husbands are not only submissive to Jesus, and children are not only submissive to their parents, but all believers submit to each other's needs out of reverence for Christ. So for a believer who is a slave... They hear the gospel presented to them as freedom. So imagine you're a slave, first century, and then someone preaches the gospel to you. You believe and you go, oh, this is the gospel of freedom. I'm a slave. This is perfect. I need freedom. So they are freed from their bondage of sin and free in Christ. And the natural product of that type of thinking is that then we also must be free from all bondage that is evil and unjust. Because isn't this a gospel of justice? Aren't my sins paid for? Isn't this a matter of morality? Isn't that gospel justice applied not to my life? Shouldn't I be freed from my slavery? And Paul's like, no. Because there's a better truth inside of that gospel foundationally that will reveal Christ better than your freedom from your physical slavery. Slavery. John MacArthur says, In modern society, this seems an insensitive command to those who wrongly assume that freedom is some God-given right rather than a preferable option. You're not entitled to freedom. That's not promised you in Scripture. You are not entitled to your practical, earthly freedom. If that were true, then we could make an argument that even those who deserve jail should be free if they're Christians. And you could argue, though, well, if they're really Christians, they'll endure the consequence of their sin and won't be free. And it's like, where do we land on these issues? And Paul's saying, no, it's better if a Christian suffers. That's better. Because the whole world of unbelievers can do a lot of things that Jesus did. They can fight for rights. They can fight for moral justices. They can do the right thing. They can serve one another. And and Paul, or Jesus even talks about this. He says, or Paul talks about, he says, it's easy. It's easy for someone to die. To die for someone they know and love, but how much harder is it to die for your enemies? It's easy for the world to look at people who are suffering and go, oh, I feel bad for them. Let's fix that injustice. It's hard to go, I wanna, I'm willing to be the one upon whom that injustice is cast and to face it and to endure it. That's hard. And Paul makes a better argument than deserving freedom. He makes an argument that the slave gets to express an element of the gospel that others don't get to express, which is this aspect of the work of Christ in which he joyfully submits himself to evil men and their evil actions to accomplish a greater work that once endured will produce eternal joy. Jesus endured evil men willingly. He was not killed against his will. In John 10, 17 through 18, Jesus said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. This is vital to the gospel because it ensures that Jesus' death is not just an injustice, but that is a self-motivated sacrifice. If it is a sacrifice against his will, then it is not a valid sacrifice that can pay for our sins. Jesus' sacrifice must be his choice in order to accomplish all the purposes purposes of the gospel. 
And so also when a slave is freed in Christ and believes, they also get the same opportunity to show this aspect of the gospel that we, like Jesus, are willingly choosing to endure an unjust and unfair treatment in order to show the enduring power of faithfulness to Christ. So that the enduring power of the gospel is revealed in the one who stays in their slavery and serves their master with joy and honor, just as Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. That's Hebrews 12.2. This not only accomplishes honor and glory to that earthly master, but it ensures honor and glory to God. Additionally, staying in this slavery ensures that the gospel is presented to their master. Not only in words, but in the example of faithful and joyful service to a higher authority in the midst of suffering. So that their master may come to see their slave's faithfulness and then trust in Christ for salvation. So it's not... And you're not guaranteed. The slave isn't guaranteed. If you stay in that slavery, your master's going to see you the way you honor them and exalt Christ. And they're going to see the gospel in your life. And in doing so, they'll believe. That's not a promise. But I can tell you, they're not going to believe if they don't see that at least. Think about how Philemon must have felt when Onesimus ran away. Now imagine Philemon's an unbelieving slave owner and his unbelieving slave runs away. Or he's an unbelieving slave owner and his believing slave runs away. You think he's going to look at that man as an honorable man? You think Christ is going to emanate from that slave who ran away? All in the name of, this is unfair and I follow a God of fairness. And guess what? You don't follow a God of fairness. Because God never claims that fairness is his priority. If he did, you'd go to hell. That's the, the premise of the gospel is God's not fair. That he gives you grace and mercy. That's not fair because you don't deserve it. And so we show that. These slaves show that by submitting to their masters. And if they do that, the masters might see Christ in them and believe. And Jesus talks about this in Matthew five sixteen. He says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who's in heaven. For the slave, Paul argues, your lot in life is currently as a slave. And this was ordained by God according to 1 Corinthians seven seventeen, so that you could reveal the powerfully applicable effects of the gospel to your master, which will be completely ruined if you disrespect or dishonor your master. By honoring your master, you're showing them the base of the gospel, which is our submission to a greater master. With that principle in place, the slave can then reveal the purpose of the gospel to their master. They get to example the spiritual slavery that we have to Christ by showing their respect and honor to their earthly master the same way we show honor and respect and submission to our real master Christ. So you can see how Paul is willing to value the gospel far above any other human right or freedom, even in the face of great injustices done against you. That is how we are to apply the gospel in the Christian life. Now, we want to see how that applies not just to slavery, because I don't think anyone in here is a slave. So let's look at verse 2 and watch this unfold more. And now the situation changes a little bit in verse 2. Paul says, Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Now, Paul makes a different argument because the situation is different. The believing slave is a slave to a believing master. And the reason the slave must submit to and honor their master is because their master is a believer. And the slave's service to their master benefits the believing master, a brother in Christ. A Christian benefits from your service, from your submission, from your gospel presentation to stay in slavery and honor them. And therefore, a valid reason to remain a slave and to do so joyfully. So what you see here is that Paul is elevating this concept that your brother or sister is 
in Christ, a brother or sister in Christ, another believer is getting a benefit at your expense. I'm going to repeat that. I want you to listen. Another person, specifically a brother or sister in Christ, it doesn't have to be a brother or sister in Christ, but even more so if it's a brother and sister in Christ. And his point is, they are getting a benefit at your expense. Or due to your suffering. And that is a worthy and valid reason to suffer. Meaning Paul is applying Philippians 2.3 to the situation of slavery which says, In humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others. So there is this principle addressed here that should run throughout every Christian's life and every aspect of our faith and our walk and our daily living. And trust me, I'm writing this sermon, I'm thinking about all the ways in which I don't do this. And I'm like, whoa, no, thank God we have a lifetime to get sanctified because I am so far from this perspective, from truly living out in all the details of my life, this kind of perspective, this kind of mentality, this kind of character where I'm going to suffer And at my expense, someone else will gain. Do I do it at times? Yeah. And when I do it, I'm like, I'm pretty proud of myself. You know? And then I think about all the ways, the little ways, the subtle ways, the ways that we almost don't even really consider taking loss for the sake of someone else. Enduring hardship and suffering for the sake of someone else. For their benefit, considering them more important than myself. Meaning they should be freed from the burden so that I, so I will take the burden for them. Think about all the little ways I don't apply that in my life. I don't apply it in my marriage. I don't apply it in my parenting. I don't apply it in my shepherding of the church. I don't apply it in my friendships. I do apply it in all those those things in certain ways, but not in others. I don't feel guilty about it. I don't feel shame about it. I just know that God's got a lot of work to do to sanctify me. And I think if you truly evaluated all the aspects and details of your life, you'd find yourself in the same boat as me. I do it sometimes, but not enough. I'm missing awesome opportunities to express the gospel. So this principle that should run through it all of our lives is the principle that as believers, we are willing to take the loss, endure the suffering, face the hardship in any situation at our own expense for the benefit of someone else, even if that person is not a believer or that person is enforcing some kind of evil on you or injustice against you. First Peter 3.17, it's not in the slides. He says, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. What does that mean? That means you're going to suffer. What does he say in 1 Peter 3, 17? It is better to suffer for doing good. So that tells us what? You can suffer for doing good than to suffer for doing evil. What does that tell us? You can suffer for doing evil. You can do good or you can do evil, but you're going to suffer. That's Paul's point or Peter's point here. And he says that if you suffer for doing good, verse 17 says that would be God's will. So God's sovereign will can be that you suffer for doing good. And that's better than you suffering because you did evil. So if you're going to suffer for doing good, what has to happen? In order for your suffering to be presented to you as you're doing the right thing... That must mean that somebody in your life or in this world is imposing on you an evil to counter your good in order for you to suffer. Because you're only going to suffer at the hands of evil. You're not going to suffer at the hands of good. You're going to suffer at the hands of evil. So if you're doing good and God wills that you suffer, that means that God has willed also that somebody does an evil thing to you. So that you're suffering for doing good. And when that happens, Paul is telling us, and as Jesus has told us, you will love them despite the infliction of suffering they put on you. 
through the means of evil that they enact, and you will bless them. And you think, well, what do you mean, bless them? What do you mean, love them? Meaning you will show them Christ. You, it doesn't mean you, you know, someone does the most unthinkable evil thing to you. And you go, here's a present. I gave you a $5 gift card to the gas station. It's my way of loving you. It's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's saying, how do you love them? Jesus is saying, how do you love them? How do you bless them? You pour heaping coals on their head. You show them Christ. That's how you love people. That's the best way to love people. And how do you show someone Christ when they are doing evil and injustice against you and forcing you to suffer for your doing good? You continue to endure that hardship and that suffering. You take the loss willfully and joyfully knowing that your loss could be their gain. Because they need Christ. And that's the only reason you're suffering. Because they don't have him. Because they're doing evil to you. We just aren't so willing to face hardship as Christians. And I get it. Because our human sinful flesh, our nature, is that we want comfort and freedom. This is why the American dream sounds so good to humans. That's why people from every nation in the world want to come to America. Well, at least they used to, and but, but they still are. So obviously people want to come here. Why? Because you have absolute freedom and autonomy. That's the American dream. And what comes with freedom and autonomy? Comfort. That's what we want. Our flesh wants to settle into comfort. I mean, I have lived most of my Christian life for a long time trying to like, you know, and, and as a pastor for years, I was like, okay, if we just get these people right and then get these people right and get this right and then, and then everything. And in my brain, I didn't even realize that I was doing it. That in my brain, I was trying to like set up the church like a, like a chessboard. Everybody get in your square and stay there. Okay, ready? Okay, stop. Are we good? Is everyone good? All right, everyone's a Christian. Everyone's obedient. Everyone's good. All right, I'll stay there till Jesus comes back. Because if anyone moves, I'm going to have to deal with it. And I don't want to deal with the problems. Like, that's how we all operate in our life. Like, we're waiting for this moment in life when everything's just fine and good and in order. And it's like, that's not life. Life is chaos. Because we live in a fallen world that is permeated by sin and is falling apart. It is being destroyed. Creation, Romans 8, creation groans for the redemption of God's children. Because the creation itself is going, this is the worst. I'm falling apart. I'm dying. I'm decaying. Creation, that's us. We are groaning for the redemption that is ours in Christ. And my whole life, for years as a pastor, I mean, I knew this is who, this is part of because it's my personality, not my theology. This isn't my theology. This is my sinful personality, an aspect of my personality that is not redeemed or perfected yet, that wants everything just placed in order. And once everything's in order, then I can, like, whew, I can take a break and I can rest and I can just kind of relax with some comfort. Because I want everything to be settled and nice and comfortable and good and no conflict. Everybody just chill. Let's not have any problems, but that's not life. And that's not the Christian life for sure. And God's like, Mark, what are you waiting for? That's never going to happen in the church. Do you know what the church is filled with? Sinners. You know what the church is for? Sinners. You know what the church is going to do? Sin. And there's going to be problems. And you have to endure them. And you have to teach them to endure them. And it will be hard. And there will be suffering. And there will be injustice. And it will be unfair. And you will never get to settle. You will work your tail off until the day you die. And if you do that faithfully, while you suffer as you do good, I will give you a reward that is beyond your many little mind's concept of what a reward even is. I will, below your concept of blessing out of the water, I will bless you with treasures that you can't even imagine. And we're going, ooh, I get a mansion and I get money and I get all this stuff. And I'm going to have this awesome eternal life. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. You don't get it. You get me. And only an unbeliever would go, that's it? Think about the song we just sang. As we're singing it, I'm thinking about this. And I'm going, the Lord is my salvation.
The name Jesus comes from the Hebrew Yeshua, which means the Lord is salvation. He doesn't just say the Lord saves. The Lord hasn't just given me salvation. The Lord is, is my salvation. What is salvation? Jesus, that's the answer. What is salvation? I get eternal life. Nope, you get Christ. What is salvation? Jesus is salvation. He is it. He's the present. He's the gift. He's the deliverer. He's the redeemer. He's the one who creates the salvation. He's the one who dies for your salvation. He's the one who offers you salvation. And he's the one who's earned your salvation. And he's the one who applies your salvation. And he's the one who works out your salvation. And he's the one you get at the end of salvation. And he's the one who continues forever, which means salvation continues forever. Because the promise is not that you get to live freely forever, but that you get to live in slavery to Jesus for eternity and only Christians can celebrate that truth because any other person who's not a believer is going to look at that and go sounds pretty uh, misogynistic and um, sounds pretty like uh, what's the word I'm looking for patriarch I like that one that was really good yeah 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 patriarchal you know uh, hot words in today's culture Dictator, oh, this God forces us to worship him. Yeah, well, if you knew what we knew about who he is, you would say you have to worship him too. I've said this for years. Does God know all things? Yes or no? Okay. Does that mean that God therefore knows himself better than we could possibly know him? Yes or no? Yes. Okay, so does that mean that God knows that he's the best thing for us? Yes. Which means it would only be right if he demanded that we worship and love him. Because for him to say anything other than that would make God putting you in a place where you could have something other than God that's before God. And that would make God an idolater. Which he can't be. So he demands worship, and he demands that we celebrate him, and he demands that we love him, and real Christians really understand who Jesus is, not just that he's our savior, but that he is the salvation. He is the gift. He is the gospel. The gospel is you get the good, the gospel is good news. The good news is you get God, you get Jesus. That's the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is salvation. Jesus is the reward. Jesus is the present. Jesus is the gift. He's more than just the guy who died for you. He's the reason he died for you. He's the reason reason you believe that he died for you he is everything if we do not grasp that concept then how could we possibly call ourselves christians and if we believe that that's true and if you're sitting there right now thinking yeah preach it pastor mark i believe it i love it i like that truth i love when you're talking about how awesome jesus is yeah then why don't we live like him why wouldn't why would we look at slavery and say well i shouldn't be a slave then When if we really believe Christ for who he is, then we would recognize that my love for my salvation, my Christ, my Jesus, means I get to and want to be like him. Walk his walk, live his life, talk his talk, endure his sufferings, face those challenges, and get through this life by the power of God and not by the power of myself, which is exactly how Jesus lived his life, by the power of the Spirit of God. Jesus didn't get to cheat And tap into his divinity and resist temptation and go, I'm God, I can't be tempted, ha ha, I win. That is cheating. Jesus, in his human flesh, had to endure the suffering of temptation. He had to face the temptation with his human body, in his human mind, with his limitations as a human, and depend on and trust in the Spirit of God who dwelled in him. And with the power of God himself in him, not his divine nature, but the spirit, he had to resist temptation so that he could be a perfect example to you of what resisting temptation is about. And he endured that resistance to the point of death. And we get upset when Amazon delivers our package a day late. Oh, this is so unfair. I do it all the time. Oh, my goodness. If you guys lived with me, you'd be like, why is that guy our pastor? Um, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, when I'm at home, 
And I'm like on my phone or watching a game or watching TV. or whatever. You know, everything in your home is internet connected. Every technology in your house is connected to the internet. When your Wi-Fi goes out, it's like the whole world has just collapsed. My TV doesn't work. My phone doesn't work. I can't search the internet. I, don't, I can't look at this. I can't do this. And it's like what I was just doing just got stopped because my internet isn't working. I got to go back to the router and I got to reset the router. And I'm just like or, – or, or the, the internet company is like we're doing maintenance and you're not going to have – or someone ran into a transformer and you're not going to have internet for 12 hours. And I'm like 12 hours? I, and I say these things to my – because I get so frustrated in my sin – because I'm not getting the comfort that I believe I'm entitled to. I paid for that service. I should get that service. And when that internet goes out, I'm going to call Spectrum. And I say, I want 12 hours of money back in my pocket that I paid for and I didn't get internet for. I want justice. So when I told you earlier I'm justice, not mercy, <laughs> there's a good expression of it, right? This is unfair. It needs to be set right. And every time I do that, I'm doing it in anger. And then when I calm down, I'm like, oh, my goodness, Mark. What is wrong with you? <laughs> like, it's just the internet, dude. Chill out. It's just an injustice. I mean, if I can't endure that, I mean, I've endured a lot harder things than that in my life. You've seen me. You have seen me endure harder things than that. Following Christ. It's not about doing the, morally, the moral good things or the moral commands of Scripture. Following Christ is about Christ. If you want to follow Christ, that means you're following Christ. Think about what that means. Following. If I said, follow me, if I got done preaching and I pointed at you and said, hey, follow me. Are you going to go where I go? Yeah. Are you going to walk behind me? Yeah. Are you going to take the steps that I took? Yeah. Are you going to end up in the same place I end up in? Yeah. That's following. And what did he walk? Suffering. He walked in suffering constantly. Ridicule. By design. For glory. For us to endure. Because Jesus understands how important it is that we take the loss. We see this principle stated more clearly when Paul is addressing lawsuits between believers. And he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 7, that instead of enforcing suffering and disadvantage on someone else, to relieve yourself from that suffering, you put it on someone else. Because it's right and it's just. It's right. I'm not wrong. They're wrong. They should have to endure their being wrong. Their problem, they should suffer it. Not me. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 7, why not rather you suffer wrong? Why not rather you be defrauded? It may not be fair and it may not be justice, but it does reveal the attitude of Christ as one who is willing to face sufferings in injustice for the sake of the benefit of others. In Hebrews 12, 4, the author argues that we should be willing to face such things all the way up to the point of death. Because he says... In your struggle against sin, essentially what he's saying is in your struggle against sin, you haven't made it all the way to being like Jesus yet. So you're not done. Ephesians 4 says we are all growing into the stature of the measure of the maturity of Christ. He's the goal. His perfection is our aim. And we're not done being sanctified till we get to Christ-likeness and his perfections, which means glory after this life, which means in this life, we are to endure until we have met what Christ met in his endurance, which was death, which is why Hebrews 12, 4 says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. That's the author saying, do it until you die. If that's what it costs, if that's what it takes. And if it does cost a slave their life, or it does cost you your life, there are other biblical truths that help us endure to the point of death, such as Philippians 1.23, where Paul says, to depart and be with Christ is far better. Far better. 
Paul says to live is Christ. To live is to have Christ. I get to have Christ and preach Christ and live Christ and show Christ in this life. But to die is to gain Christ. I get him in his fullness and that's far better. Or Romans 8.18 as an encouragement to endure suffering. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. In the verse before it says, suffering is a requirement. Because obedience is a requirement. And obedience in the face of a world that hates God will produce Suffering as you do good, if that should be God's will. So what does this teach us? Free Americans who can barely fathom the concept of being a human slave. We get it. We can understand the concept. But imagine someone took you and made you their slave. Which is just not a concern. I just don't think about that. It's not common in my life and in my world. I see these reports all over social media and the news and are like, this many people have been taken from gas stations and stores and women captured in parking lots. And I'm like, just in Minnesota or here or there. I'm like, whoa, where, what? I never see this. I, we're so blind to that, those realities and those things happen and they are not okay. And I wouldn't say to that person like, you know, just suck it up and get over it. You know, people taken captive it's not, it's not a good thing. Paul's not saying slavery is a good thing. People, owning people, that's good. He literally said in 1 Corinthians 7, that's not good. Don't, don't submit yourselves to men. Don't intentionally become a slave. He tells Philemon, don't be a slave owner, essentially. So we have a hard time even fathoming the idea of us being a human slave. But it reminds us that though we are free Americans... We are slaves to Christ. And as Americans, our entire life, we have been sold this dream that freedom is everything. Freedom is everything. Freedom is all that's ma- that matters. What's why we created this country? For freedom and freedom alone. Why? Because personal autonomy is the idol of choice that America worships. Your freedom as an American citizen, is what we worship. Which is why we celebrate. You can be whatever you want to be. You have personal autonomy and freedom. You can freely choose to be a cat if you want. That's that's why we have gender dysphoria in our culture. Because of this worship of personal autonomy and freedom. And your freedom as an American citizen is the idolatry that has been pushed into your psyche for hundreds of years. And I'm not saying that freedom itself is idolatry because it's not. But that it has become an idol as it is the foundation of our country. And with it comes the comforts of freedom that we cannot imagine living without because our blessings have made us believe that we are entitled to the blessings of freedom. And the gospel says, no, you are not. So, given that even slaves must submit to their master, how much should we then, as believers, be submissive to our government, like we're commanded? How much more should we be submissive to the police, like we're commanded? How much more should we be submissive to our local governing officials, like we're commanded? And how much, should, how much more should wives be submissive to their husbands, like they're commanded? And how much more should children be submissive to their parents, like they're commanded? And how much more should husbands be submissive to Christ, like they're commanded? And how much more should we all honor them all with our submission, like we're commanded? If even a slave must honor their master, should not free Christians also implement the same principles of taking loss and suffering for the sake of others at your own expense to show the world that we don't require justice in this life. Christians do not demand justice in this life because we believe a gospel that tells us that God promises he will right all wrongs and create perfect justice in his time at the end, but for now, followers endure. 
Romans 12, 17, 19, 21. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Never avenge yourselves. You don't have to fix all the injustices, especially when they're against you. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Your job, overcome evil with good. Stop fighting battles that aren't yours. You're never going to fix the world. We were never commanded to fix the world. We are not social justice warriors. We are gospel proclaimers, Christ-like followers. We are Christians. We endure. We suffer. And we fight for righteousness in our hearts. Because that's a big enough battle as it is, let alone trying to face the world and all of its injustices. While I sit at home and sin against my God. So that I can feel better to the world about how I behave because I'm fighting for morality while I myself don't live a morally Christ-like life in my heart and mind. And call that Christianity. And God knows your heart and you can boast that, boast about that on all the social media posts you want and put it out there for the world to see and the church will go, oh, what a good man you are. And God goes, but I know your heart. And you don't live a gospel life. Our good is to submit to those authorities with a gospel-centered mindset that God will have his justice when he determines it's required. In the end, God will right all wrongs. And in the meantime, we are to endure those injustices that, that, ca- that are cast upon us so that we may not only show the world the powerful effects of trusting in Christ, but also so that we may personally know, personally know the sufferings of Christ ourselves that sanctify us into his likeness. So let me just say this last word. What injustices are you trying to fix and hold on to in this world when maybe somebody is doing something wrong and you want to fix it because it's wrong and somebody's doing this or the world's doing this or the government's doing this or, the, or these people think that and I need to fix these injustices. This person or that thing or this group are doing something wrong and I personally feel responsible and accountable to making sure they do it right and going to them and saying, why are you always wrong? And God's like, stop doing that. I just preached last week and the week before about how important it is to address the sins of our brothers and sisters in Christ and there's a godly way to do so. I'm not saying don't address sin. What I'm saying is why are we not, why are we so bent on fixing everything that's wrong? It's wrong. It's never going to get fixed. The world is full of sin. Jesus will fix it. Chill, church. Seriously. Everybody's a mess. We're all a mess. We are righteous and perfected in Christ. We are living in the righteousness of Jesus. We are doing good works. Amen. Praise God. You're an awesome church. I love you guys. I see you do so many great things. But at the same time, I also know your heart's a mess and your mind's a mess and you got sin and it's running all throughout you and you're battling it every day. And on top, that's enough on its own. Just focus on that. Stop trying to fix the world. Stop trying to fix your friends. Stop trying to fix everybody in your life who isn't perfect. Stop trying to right all the wrongs and create justice where there's injustice. Stop trying to make everything balanced like I was telling you. And I'm trying to get everyone to just, everyone get in your square, in your chess piece place and stay there and we'll all be good. Nobody move. Like that mentality is never going to work. Sin creates chaos and it's everywhere. We need to learn to live in it, endure it, face it, and suffer it. And do so to the point where it may even kill us and, and, and do it in a way that benefits others at our loss and our suffering, our despair. And that might even be you looking at those sins and going, that's not my job to fix. I'm not going to deal with these people. It is my responsibility to focus on my relationship with Jesus today. And that's what I'm going to do. I don't have to right the wrongs in the world because that's not my job. But I can be as much like Christ as I, as I can. And in doing that, one person at a time, I might change eternity. That, that is one of the ways we are not like Christ. He gets to save the world. We don't. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We just pray. Oh, that you would help us apply this to our lives. It's so much easier to just try to fix all the wrongs. 
for some of us, and it's just, it's, it's actually far more enjoyable just to just endure the hardships that we have to face on our own as it is, because that's enough. And, and in, the, in those moments, to just trust on you and depend on you and rest in you and come to you and, and, and call to you and you, you answer and you show up and you make this promise, I'll never leave you, forsake you, I will walk through this with you, I will show you how to walk this path, I will show you how to face this, in, this injustice, I will help you endure this suffering because I've done it already. Just trust me. And I'll deal with the injustices later. Help us to see you that way. And then just live the life you've called us to live, as it says in 1 Corinthians 7, 17. Just live the life you've called us to be in. And to do so with joy, knowing who we are in Christ, walking our walk, facing our battles, suffering joyfully and enduring everything for the sake of other people at our own expense and at our loss to magnify your glory and be satisfied in you. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.